I'm Brian Santo, EE Times Editor-in-Chief, and you're listening to EE Times On Air. This is your briefing for the week ending March 27th. In this episode, Intel's Hamster. Most of today's neuromorphic systems are roughly as sophisticated as the brain of an insect. Intel just scaled up a neuromorphic system that is roughly equivalent to the brain of a small rodent. We'll discuss this extraordinary leap up the neuromorphic food chain. Also, the schedule for technical conferences has been completely shattered, and yet it is imperative to try to keep at least some business flowing. Many of the top suppliers in the electronics business are participating in a virtual event for embedded systems technology called Embedded to Go. We'll talk with one of the organizers of the event. Also, disaster and triumph. The Apollo 13 space mission experienced one of the worst equipment failures in NASA history. Getting those astronauts home safe was an amazing achievement. We've got an interview with Ben Feist, who put together a multimedia presentation of the entire Apollo 13 space mission using NASA audio and video, most of which we were astonished to find had never been combined before. This next clip is Capsule Commander Joe Kerwin of NASA on a phone call explaining to a colleague what the problem was. Uh, Tonight, just after the TV broadcast, uh, they had Mm -hmm. an explosion in the service module, and it uh, killed two fuel cells immediately. Oh. uh, They lost all of the oxygen in one oxygen tank, and immediately and eventually all the oxygen in the other. Oh. Uh, Oh, well, that's interesting. Yeah. And uh, they were very time-limited because uh, in a short time they were going to be out of electrical power in the command module, service module. Right. So they went into the limb, they activated and made it active. They uh, powered down the command service module. They're going to uh, burn uh, before Paracynthian. Mm-hmm. to get on a free return trajectory. Mm-hmm. Going to live in the limb. It's like, it's like a nightmare sim, frankly. We'll get back to Apollo 13 in a few minutes. Modern neuromorphic computing is a return to basic neural networking principles formulated decades ago. The initial idea was to try to mimic how the brain functions. The introduction of digital microprocessors in the early days of neural networking diverted the discipline, however. Processors became relatively cheap, and they doubled in power every two years, and that was as enticing to neural network researchers as anyone else. Using microprocessors meant diverging from the way brains actually work, however. For example, neural networks began relying a great deal on reinforcement, whereas in biological brains, there's much less reliance on feedback loops. Nonetheless, the approach taken got results. What neural network researchers didn't, perhaps couldn't, anticipate early on was that they were heading toward a technological dead end. Eventually, the problem spaces began scaling faster than the processor technology could keep up with. So in the last few decades, more and more researchers have been getting back to first principles, trying once again to use mostly digital technology to more closely mimic the way brains work. It's one of the reasons the term neuromorphic was coined to distinguish these latter efforts from some of the neural network approaches that are dead-ending. 
EE Times editor Sally Ward-Foxton recently wrote a story about Intel's experiments with neuromorphic computing. The company has a neuromorphic chip called Luigi. Previously, the company put two of those chips together, which represented about the same number of artificial neurons as a fruit fly has real neurons. Sally's story is about how Intel just scaled up that system to 768 of its Loihi chips and to about 100 million neurons, which she said is roughly the same as a naked mole rat. Here she is with international editor Junko Yoshida. All right, so it's 100 million neurons that you described in your story. It's roughly the same number of neurons a mole rat or hamster has in its brain. So that got me thinking, uh, Sally, how many neurons you or I have in our brain? Do you have any guess? So, yeah, we we think it's about 86 billion with a B, 86 billion neurons in the human brain. This actually was proved uh, by a Brazilian uh, scientist back in 2012. Up until then, we thought it was 100 billion. This is one of these figures that's kind of widely quoted everywhere, books, Uh papers, but nobody could remember where this figure actually came from. So it was actually proved in 2012, it's 86 billion. Wow. Well, that already makes me makes me feel a little um, better or superior to a rat, yeah. I guess. Better than a mole rat with 100 million yeah. or a hamster at 90 million, yeah. yeah. Or the poor right. old lobster with just 100,000 equivalent really? of one Loihi chip, yeah. Wow, that's interesting. <laughs> All right, so first thing first, Sally, I want you to step back and start from the very basics, you know, educate your ignorant editor here. What is neuromorphic computing? Let's start from there. So starting from page one, uh, neuromorphic computing, it's a branch of computing inspired directly by the structure of the brain. So the brain's Mm. a great computer, does all kinds of complicated calculations. It does it very, very quickly and it uses very little energy. Uh, The human brain only uses about 20 watts. Uh, So it's very, very efficient. Um, The idea behind neuromorphic computing is to combine our expertise in silicon with some structural concepts directly taken from the brain, combine that with a neural network algorithm that's also inspired by how the brain works to try and create a really efficient computer. Yeah, all right. So you kind of summed up very nicely. So now I understand that's part of the reason that we hear now often um, a ter- terminology like brain-inspired chips, right? And obviously right, Intel's yeah, uh, yeah Loihi chip. Um, they used in, in this announcement that neuromorphic computing system is in fact also a brain-inspired chip, correct? Correct, yeah. Yeah, all right. So tell us how that works. Right, so basically the brain communicates using these neurons, the nerve cells, and synapses. Uh, neurons are the cells, synapses are the connections between the cells, and the connections can yep. be electrical or chemical. A neuron only fires when its potential reaches a certain value, and neurons mm. kind of pass these signals on through the synapses to neurons further down the chain, and they're more or less likely to fire depending on the nature of the signal, let's say. So that you basically yeah. get circuits made out of neurons and synapses that can process information. And Loihi's architecture mimics this structure by using techniques like extreme parallelism, many-to-many communication, and asynchronous signals. Um, So there's no 
you know, multiply, accumulate units or anything like what you'd see in a traditional <laughs> chip. It's sure. nothing like yeah. it. Uh, you basically get these electrical pulses that are called spikes. And it's all about the timing of these spikes uh, as the timing modulates the strength of the connections between the neurons, making them more or less likely to fire. So it's kind of analogous to how weights affect the impact of the parameters in a more traditional kind of artificial neural network. Hopefully okay, that so made sense. Yeah, no, it does. And and you actually, uh, it's, it's a perfect segue to my next question, because uh, one of the things that a lot of people wonder is that, you know, what, it, what are the differences between a so-called brain-inspired chip and an AI chip, right? I mean, both seems like, okay, it has something to do with intelligence, something to do with brain, <laughs> and uh, but how are they different? Right, so they're, they're both designed to run artificial neural networks or accelerate neural networks, but AI accelerators today are based on traditional computing, even if it's some mm. kind of really specialized ASIC. You know, they right. rely on many cores in parallel and lots of memory to hold all the weights and parameters inside the chip. Sometimes they have mm -hmm. these clever, flexible data paths, but all the information is passed along from stage to stage every cycle. And if you've got a neural network where the activation is quite sparse, that is, you know, most of the data is zero, it still takes energy to multiply those weights by zero. Um, right. So although both neuromorphic chips and AI accelerators both run neural networks. Neuromorphic yeah. computing only runs these very special, very niche type of neural networks called spiking networks. As we said, it's kind ah. of inspired by these electrical pulses in the brain, but it's right. asynchronous computing. The timing really matters. So not every ah. neuron fires every cycle, only the ones where the data isn't zero. So you can basically right. save tons of power. Um, and there's, so there's quite an important distinction between traditional neural networks and neuromorphic algorithms, which is that traditionally uh, networks, neural networks need tons of time and energy and reams and reams of well-labeled data to be trained um, before they can right. do the inference. But with neuromorphic techniques, you can allow, you can allow these kind of one-shot training techniques. Um, so Intel hmm. did a project on an electronic nose based on low EHE uh, that they talked about this week. Uh, they exposed it oh, to right. just one sample of each smell, and that was it, training training done. You know, it effectively learns in real time. So it's a totally different computing paradigm. Right. So, but that does mean that, you know, I, that got me thinking that maybe the, the it limits the application of uh, so-called neuromorphic chip compared to AI chip. Uh, I mean, it's like, I, I always thought that the, you know, talking to some experts uh, in the field of neuromorphic uh, engineering, I've always thought that those chips work best on the edge <laughs> rather than in data centers. Um, the, am I wrong about that? No, you're not wrong. You're not wrong. Uh, yeah, the first yeah. commercial applications will certainly be outside the cloud. Uh, the idea is to compute very efficiently and save power, yep. like multiple orders of magnitude in terms of power. Um, and it also... You can do it very, very quickly, even in real time. So those mm -hmm. two things, you know, very useful for a lot of endpoint applications. Uh, yeah. The technology has been used so far to make sense of sensor data is a great example. Um, so, for example, yeah. we're seeing these image sensors, cameras come to the market based on this technology that do yeah. image processing using these techniques. Okay. So then, um, reading from your story, I realized that Intel appears to believe the neuromorphic chips are not just for the edge, but they believe the scaling the system up is important. 
Why is that then? So, yeah, in the short term, Intel's built this huge system to kind of enable researchers who are developing these spiking algorithms. Um, it's in the cloud kind of purely to allow them access to it, to allow them remote access. And they're not really using yeah. it for what you think of as cloud computing today. Ah. Um, but further into the future, I guess, yeah, there may be data center systems, just like we have AI accelerators in data centers today. If you can save power by a factor of a thousand, of course, that's going to be useful it's in the data huge. center too. Um, yeah. That said, I think, you know, neuromorphic computing really does lend itself to real world, real time processing. So yeah, yep. I mean, it'd be interesting yeah. to, to see what happens. Intel have said yeah. they'll build a big portfolio um, of systems of different sizes, perhaps even different chips of different sizes. Um, their, huh. their eventual aim, I think, is to build bigger systems comparable to more like mammal brain or even the human brain. Uh, I mean, this is where it gets uh, really exciting yeah. slash scary, right? And uh, maybe yeah, even getting is. close to artificial general yeah. intelligence. That was the ambition of IBM's chip. I think it was called True North. I think IBM unveiled Truth Note chip uh, six years ago, I think. And at that time, the company claims it was the first single self-contained chip to achieve one million individually programmable neurons. So tell us the challenges ahead, though. What sort of problems would neuromorphic computing engineers still have to solve? So neuromorphic chips today are still in their infancy. I mean, they'll develop, they'll evolve as more work is done uh, by companies like Intel. The algorithms, the spiking neural networks, those are essential to really taking advantage of this hardware and they still, yeah. they really have a long way to go. There's a lot of research going on with the algorithms right now. Um, huh. Like Intel are working with brain scientists to try and understand more about how brains work in order to mimic the brain right. that field still holds a, a quite a few mysteries so you know it's not it's not straightforward it's not so right um in right. terms of commercialization you know it's yeah. it's all about how will engineers or developers program this thing i mean there has to be software yeah. that has to be developed in parallel with the hardware um engineers yeah. have to learn how to use it and they i guess they have to be convinced that it's worth learning how to use it so it becomes popular i mean just the same as for any new computing architecture right Right, right. So are we expecting different types of algorithm for the uh, different uh, applications when it comes to the uh, neuromorphic computing? Yes, absolutely. And that's kind of uh, where a lot of research is going into issue. right now with different. Uh, yeah. So the algorithms are really good for some optimization problems or um, yep. there's one called constrained uh parameter or something like there's all different types of problems that these neuromorphic algorithms are good at but you need different algorithms um even though they're spiking neural networks you need different algorithms for each problem algorithms yes for two, two. exactly yeah. all right okay well thank you very much uh we'll talk to you soon then thanks junko naked mole rats are just about the most interesting creatures on earth they're mammals but they're hairless and they're cold-blooded they're eusocial, which means their societies are organized less like other mammals and more like bees centering around a, a single queen. They live underground, and so their eyesight is so bad they might as well be blind. Instead, they rely heavily on their sense of smell. 
In fact, they all share the same bathroom chamber so that each member of the community ends up smelling the same as every other member. They immediately identify intruder naked mole rats because they smell differently. Naked mole rats have incredibly sharp teeth that can chew through concrete. They barely sense pain. They can live without oxygen for over 15 minutes. They almost never get cancer. And individuals can live for over 30 years. The outbreak of the novel coronavirus is an event unprecedented in living memory, causing a health crisis and economic devastation unimaginable to many of those who missed EE Times coverage of its spread in China. The only way to minimize the spread of the epidemic is to close as many places where people congregate as possible. That abruptly cut off the schedule of international conferences, and yet those conferences served many useful purposes. So, virtual conferences are beginning to spring up. Analog devices, Infineon, Intel, NXP, Silicon Labs, and dozens of other companies are participating in the webinars, live chats, video demonstrations, downloads, and more that will be presented at Embedded to Go, scheduled for next week, April 1st to April 3rd. Editor Nitin Dahad caught up with Amir Sherman, who is helping to organize the virtual trade show for Aero Electronics. Full disclosure, Aero Electronics owns Aspen Core Media, of which EE Times is part. And uh, tell me, Amir, um, tell me, what is Arrow Embedded to Go? Um, it's, it's starting um, next week. Can you tell me a little bit more about it, please? Yes, for sure. So um, with the current situation, we would like uh, to move more to virtual events uh, as people are normally now at home offices and somehow limited. So Aero Electronics is partnering with the market leading suppliers to unlock potential of key technologies like, you know, Industry 4.0, uh, uh, IoT, AI, security, cloud, automotive and more. And the idea is that we will focus from components, system on modules, evaluation boards, and cloud market-ready solutions. The focus is to see live demonstration for conditioning-based monitoring, predictive maintenance, gesture recognition, speech recognition, vision-based smart system, automotive solution, and many more of the latest embedded technologies. Our uh, uh, request for the customers to experience Aero capabilities bringing together embedded hardware, software, and cloud to find the right solution for the business uh, uh, in these specific conditions. What we are going to do is that we are going to share the possibility to get out of 5,000 boards to customers free of charge. 3,000 of them will be uh, listed online in a specific registration link. So every customer can be registered, give a short description about his project with his uh, information and shipping address, and we will ship these boards to him. Great. And um, I think by attending the virtual live event, uh, there'll be so much value because there's so many of those suppliers. Can you tell me um, maybe one or two of the focus areas? Give me one example, for example, uh, so that they can understand a little bit about what they might get out of it. Yeah, thank you, Nitin. So uh, what we believe is that uh, some suppliers want to focus on, on predictive maintenance as an example. And I can see companies, uh, suppliers like ST Microelectronics, uh, that have a specific WebEx about uh, how to drive STM32 to, drive, to support uh, condition-based monitoring. Same like uh, uh, other technologies, as an example, on semiconductor, 
having a specific WebEx on designing robust vision system for embedded application. And we see even companies uh, that supporting for cloud application like Siemens MindSphere that have a specific WebEx called sensor to cloud and beyond cloud-based solution for industry IoT challenges. So we have varieties of, of suppliers uh, uh, with many type of uh, uh, lectures and that move to WebEx. And uh, some of them are, are really known, like NVIDIA. NVIDIA want to highlight the latest Jetson SDK and rapid development tools. So we will have WebEx with live demonstration, uh, and we're going to have some WebEx with announcing on new technologies from our suppliers. Wow. Okay. So, you know, it's going to be pretty intense and people can get quite a lot out of it. That's really good. Um, so what do you recommend people do? They, they register online and also, I think, register for the board. Is that right? Exactly. So you have two possibilities. Neither to go to error.com and you can see it in the, in the highlight banner, registration to the embedded to go, or even go to a more detailed website called error.com slash embedded and then they can register to the online event and also to the free registration boards. And in the coming days and weeks, we'll collect everything and start to ship uh, the boards to our customers. And at the same time, I'm welcoming everybody to join the 1st, 2nd, and 3rd of April to the embedded to go event. Excellent. Thank you, Amir. The link where you can register for embedded to go is on our podcast webpage, too. Business has to go on. I spoke with Wally Rines, the chairman emeritus of Mentor Graphics, earlier this week. He said, every company knows that every disaster will end, and then business will have to resume. Consequently, no matter how bad things get, most companies keep designing new products in anticipation of that day. A lot of development work can be done by employees working at home, however. Meanwhile, many high-tech manufacturing facilities have remained open. Is that necessary? In fact, during a pandemic, isn't that dangerous? I have a friend who helps run a data center. He said the data traffic of every hospital in the country is already skyrocketing because so much medical information processing is done in the cloud, and the number of hospital patients continues to shoot up. Data centers need more resources just to keep hospitals running. We're begging Dell to stay open, my friend told me. We'll take all the servers you can send us. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Throwing hardware at a problem is not a sustainable strategy. But right now, we need to throw hardware at the problem. Grossly clerks, delivery people, and shop owners are heroes just for showing up to work. We can't stop all manufacturing either. People who by necessity will be working in manufacturing need also be counted as heroes. I, for one, expect to remember all of that when all of this is over. In November of 1969... Apollo 12 was the second space expedition to land on the moon. Apollo 13, launched just a few months later in April of 1970, was supposed to be the third. The astronauts got to the moon, but were never able to land, and it wasn't clear they'd ever be able to return. An oxygen tank blew on board, depriving the crew of air to breathe and fuel for operations. NASA methodically worked through the problem and found a solution that got the astronauts back safely to Earth. Apollo 13 was both a terrible disaster and one of the most inspiring testaments to engineering and human ingenuity, perseverance, and valor. The 1995 film called Apollo 13 tells the story. 
packed into two hours, it touches on all the highlights of the episode. It's a fairly accurate retelling, but by necessity incomplete. NASA has reels of mission control film, it has numerous photographs, and it has recordings of the audio from the entire mission. The astronauts themselves took film, and various news organizations also had footage. Most of it had never been put together, until now. Ben Feist is a software developer and spaceflight data visualization researcher who works with NASA. He runs a website called Apollo in Real Time. It's one of our favorites. He and his associates take all of the materials available for any given Apollo mission, restore it, and mix it into a multimedia presentation. We recently called him to talk about the Apollo in Real Time project and how it got started. I actually did it for Apollo 17 first. Uh, did the last one first, as it were, and then I did 11 second. Um, there were a lot of different technical issues that allowed us to do 13 much more rapidly than the other two. Uh, Apollo17.org, which is what it became, uh, took about six years to make. Uh, Apollo 11 took about two years to make. And Apollo 17, we did in a speedy eight months. Wow. Um, just because of the nature of the archival material was such that it allowed us to process the audio in a way that would let it snap to mission time, which allowed us to skip several of the steps that take many months. Wow. So had you actually built some of your own tools for, for doing the type of editing that you do for this? Or yes. did, did you find some? Yeah, okay. Yes, we, uh, we had um, the problem of all the historical audios. These are old analog tapes, and some of the tapes are in better shape than others, and they're mm. all in different formats and different machines play them back uh, at different rates. And they all suffer from something that's known in the audio world as wow and flutter. And wow is very long speed, uh, speed fluctuations that can happen over many minutes or hours. And flutter is a high speed uh, almost like a vibration sound, uh, speed variation that can be introduced into old recordings. And it's, it's uh, famously difficult to remove. Uh, one of the team members on our, our team here, uh, Jeremy Cooper, wrote a mm -hmm. brilliant piece of software that uses a signal that's on track one of these tapes um, to uh, correct out this, the wow and flutter from the tapes and to snap them as though they were recorded on a digital recorder uh, in 2020. Wow, I didn't want to get off on this tangent, but that's really cool stuff. Are these <laughs> things that you guys ever thought might be available to ma making them available to audio engineers? Or yes, uh, well, th this material is already available. It's all open source software. It's on GitHub, um, and uh, but you know it is difficult for recording engineers would need to have a timecode track on an adjacent channel in order to use it, and that would have to be an iRig B uh, signal. But the technique is, you know, the underlying technique would be the same. So an enterprising programmer who wanted to take it as a starting point would be welcome to do so. Wow, that's pretty cool. So uh, 17, then 11, then 13. 13 is, um, I, I wouldn't imagine that the technical difficulties would be any that much different from any of the others, but emotionally that's got to be a different thing to tackle very much um, very much yeah so. yeah it, it's uh we knew that it held a special place in the world uh thanks to the movie made by ron howard in 1995 it mm. it made it into the public vernacular you know with houston we had a problem or we, we however they said it 
we have a problem, I believe they said, where the actual uh, words were, we've had a problem. Uh, these little quibbly points uh, become something you're obsessed with when you've worked on a project like this for too long. Um, but uh, that film has has taken uh, Apollo 13 and and put it as a uh, something that a lot of people care a lot about. And um, mm. it really meant a lot to us to know that we'd be able to um, bring the reality version of that film out for everybody to enjoy uh, on the 50th anniversary. Yeah. To what extent had you known the story uh, prior to, I mean, what came first for you personally, the movie or uh, the project? I oh, mean, definitely the, the awareness movie. of what was going on. Yeah. Oh so, yeah. I, I yeah. think the movie might even be, if I think back, might be one of the first things that got me very interested in the history of Apollo. Mm. Um, I mean, it came out early, early internet. I mean, this was dial up internet days, you know, there wasn't much else out there. You had books right. if you wanted to go find them. And then this movie came out. Um, and it's that movie's actually been, um, held up by, uh, many of the people who worked on Apollo 13, the people who were actually there as one of the best, uh, depictions of what it was like in mission control. Hmm. Um, now, you know, it was a Hollywood film, so it needed to be made entertaining and, you know, we can start listing out the, the historical inaccuracies, but um, it was actually very close to accurate, especially for something based on a true story uh, from Hollywood, which is normally just has the names of the characters right. Right, right. So let me ask you this. You saw the film. It got you into the Apollo program. It got you excited about space, the space program. When you actually started going through all of the audio and video uh, from actual events, um, what were the surprises for you? Um, well, the depth and richness of listening to what really happened on something, is just, you can't beat mm -hmm. it. Um, the, you know, of course the characters weren't, you know, looking into the camera and, and exposing, exposing for the audience, uh, right. you know, deep, some generalization that makes it easy to follow. Like it, you right, have right. to, you slowly get into understanding what all this technical jargon means. Um, but to, you know, here, for example, um, flight director, Glenn Lunny, uh, giving orders and mentally moving faster than everybody else in mission control and solving the problem and saving the crew. He was the, he was the first, uh, his crew was the first, um, team to come on shift after the explosion occurred on board. Mm -hmm. And, uh, in the film, uh, all the flight directors and different shifts were all summarized into Gene Krantz, just to keep it right. simple, to not introduce too many characters. Right. So everybody thinks it was Gene Krantz and who did, you know, of course he couldn't stay up 24 hours a day. There were actually four shifts. Um, and Glenn Lunny uh, is that shift. Uh, it goes down in history as one of the greatest moments in the history of mission control. And it's wonderful to be able to hear it now in detail. Okay. In an orderly fashion, please. Uh, okay. How's the CSM? Anything for the CSM? Hey, Go. I think we're ready to power the main buses down. If everybody's ready. Dial out of control. Let's be sure we have control on the limb, although he's probably out of jets right now. Eugene, see so you got anything for the CSM? Negative flight. Okay, Capcom, for the limb, we think he ought to have an eight ball, and we ought to get his uh, RCS heaters on, his RCS pressurized, and he needs to get all his circuit breakers on 11 and 16 closed for control. Yeah, and Jack, what we're talking about is the quad heater breakers, the main SOVs, and the ISO valve breakers on panels 11 and 16. Don't you have an activation page I can just tell you to turn to? Yeah, if you want to close all those dead gum breakers on that page, and you can go back and open them up later, the ones he doesn't need. Okay. 
at activation 22 and 23. I don't have a lot of real life heroes, but my heroes tend to be the people behind the scenes who do the really tough work, who don't really get uh, a lot of credit for it until sometimes, sometimes later when they, you know, Hollywood gloms onto the story. Um, I mean, had you had heroes emerged from the Apollo 13 story uh, that you weren't aware of before that really impressed you with what they did during, uh, you know, as you went through editing this, this uh, project? Um, Yeah, very much. Uh, You know, there's kind of legends of who did what in mission control and, you know, the Mm -hmm. oral, the oral history telling at the bar, I I would assume that somebody who was there has been told for 50 years has been telling, um, is kind of exposed a little bit uh, through the reality of what was going on. And, it, you know, people's memories fade and change. And and I think mm. bringing this kind of material uh, forward that lets that kind of um, fog of, his, uh, of time go away so that you can pretend you're actually there and you can hear it happening firsthand, uh, it's more than just mm. historically, curiously interesting. It, it actually uh, is a great thing that could be studied within NASA today to uh, break mm-hmm. down and, and understand how the problem solving was done on Apollo 13, instead of the yeah. legend of the problem solving that was done. Now, it, right. I'm not saying one is better than the other or more or less, you know, sensational. Um, but uh, we, I, I heard actually from uh, Jerry Griffin, who was another one of the flight directors um, mm-hmm. who worked on Apollo 13, that he, when I sent him the link to the website, he wrote back that he could hardly wait to dive into this and to see if the stories that he's been telling for the last 50 years actually happened. (laughs) (laughs) That's brilliant. Yes. Um, So you just mentioned uh, lessons learned. Um, Were there lessons you felt uh, uh, were good for NASA? Were there lessons that you found valuable for, for yourself? Uh, Certainly the, the, it's very clear if you've listened to this for, say, an hour or an hour and a half around the time mm. of the explosion, you can hear them talking about contingency plans that they had planned for beforehand and and trying mm-hmm. to understand what portions of those contingencies actually apply to what's currently going on. And they go into this zone of trying to, trying to come up with a, a way to get home um, using what they have that is something that they learned to do during many of the sims and training. So they, Mm. in fact, on one of the phone calls uh, between two of the Capcoms, uh, one says to the other, it's kind of like a nightmare sim to tell you the truth. Um, They they had been uh, put through the ringer so many times in training that it was like second nature for them to understand the systems at the level they needed to understand them um, down to how every circuit is connected on board to come up, construct a way that wasn't pre-planned. It didn't just open a second book that told them how to get home. Um, And that depth of knowledge could only have come from the kind of uh, um, pressured training that they were put under. So that's a a major takeaway is that I think a a lot of the time training, uh, you know, if we think outside of mission control, when we train for something, we're often, you know, we learn about this or that, that might go wrong and what to do in those situations, but we're really training for the uh, optimal path through through something. Um, they trained for uh, the non-opt off nominal, as they call it, the off nominal path, um, yeah. and and I think uh, doing that is uh, is a wonderful thing to do, no matter what it is you're focused on. 
It's a, it's I, that sounds like a, a good general engineering principle. Yeah, I think so. Um, yeah, yeah it, it's, uh, I, I guess in it, in, well, in space engineering, which is the one I'm most familiar with that they, they're in a mm-hmm. constant state of, of testing the boundaries of a system and understanding, um, how things will behave when they're in a different situation. But I don't think that kind of level of, uh, discipline is applied broadly. Uh, I think mm-hmm. it's only for life and death and one shot type tasks like the space program. This will be my last question. Going through uh, um, their experience, the, the the experience of the astronauts and the people on the ground trying to help them out, were there moments that were exhilarating, perhaps? One where it's like, wow, they figured it out and you can hear it in their voices? Um, I not figured it out. Uh, it was... Uh, when the parachutes opened, uh, for mm-hmm. it's definitely when everybody uh, knew they had made it past the last big hurdle. And yeah. it's it's not spoken about very often, but on Apollo 13, there was concern about um, the parachutes not opening properly uh. because the batteries on board the command module uh, didn't have a, a place they could recharge from because the service module, which is where the explosion occurred, lost its ability to generate power. So these batteries had the charge in them that they had since very early in the mission, and they went all the way around the moon and back. And you know they they'd uh, gone over the numbers a million times and made sure that it was going to work. Mm-hmm. Um, and you know they weren't technically worried about it, but you can hear the emotion in people's voices that like, okay, well at least you know we were right. Thank goodness it, it worked the way that it should have. In fact, Neil yeah. Armstrong even talks about the uh, parachutes being a. Uh, very perilous moment uh, upon re-entry uh, in a press conference. If you were in the spacecraft uh, during re-entry, which would you regard as the most critical moment of all from the point of view of the commander and the crew? The parachutes. I think that's unquestionably the, uh, the most serious time point in the entry from, from my point of view. And the reason is that unlike Let's say you're sitting on the moon and the ascent engine doesn't fire. At least you have the benefit of time to consider, discuss it with the control center and, and uh, consider possible alternatives for getting that engine started. But when the parachutes don't come out, you're rather short of alternatives and considerably short of time. Ben, thank you so much for spending time with us today. Uh, I really appreciate it. Uh, it was great talking to you, and uh, you've got an open invitation to come back. Oh, thanks very much. I really appreciate <laughs> you taking an interest, and I hope people enjoy the website uh, during the mission anniversary. You can find Ben's multimedia presentation at Apollo in Real Time. That's all one word, apolloinrealtime.org slash 13. George Leopold is our staff space maven. George contributes a column to EE Times called Critical Path, and his most recent submission is a story about the Apollo in real time, Apollo 13 project. The story is called Critical Path, Grace in Space Under Pressure. There are handy links to both those sites and our story on the podcast webpage. And speaking of naked mole rats, it's time for our weekly jaunt in the Wayback Machine, which takes us back to important dates in science history. Step right this way. In the late 1800s, scientists noticed that the orbit of Uranus seemed to be affected by some other object. 
which was eventually dubbed Planet X by Percival Lowell. Lowell did the math and predicted where Pluto would be found. He died 15 years before conclusive photographic evidence of its existence was announced on March 13, 1930. It was found pretty much where Lowell thought it would be. Years later, it turned out that there was Nothing in particular disturbing Uranus, and Lowell's astonishingly accurate prediction was put down to dumb luck. Pluto remained a planet for the next 76 years, until an argument broke out vis-a-vis its standing with another trans-Neptunian object called Eris, which was smaller but 27% more massive. The choice was to either admit Eris was a planet too, or to strip Pluto of its planethood or at least full planethood. The International Astronomical Union created the category of dwarf planet and stuck both Pluto and Eris into it. Here's what John Prine has to say on the matter. Poor old planet Pluto now. He never stood a chance no how. When he got uninvited to the interplanetary dance, once a mighty planet there, now just an ordinary star, hanging out in Hollywood, in some old funky sushi bar. Well, that's from John Prine's The Lonesome Friends of Science. The copyright gods won't let us play it for you, but if you visit the website, we've got a link. On March 8th in 1978, a broadcasting company in the United Kingdom called the BBC aired the first episode of the original radio version of Douglas Adams' The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. A towel, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy says, is about the most massively useful thing an interstellar hitchhiker can have. Partly, it has great practical value. You can wrap it around you for warmth as you bound across the cold moons of Jaglin Beta. You can lie on it in the brilliant marble-sanded beaches of Centraginus V, inhaling the heady sea vapors. You can sleep under it beneath the stars which shine so redly on the desert world of Cockrafoon. Use it to sail a mini-raft down the slow, heavy rither moth. Wet it for use in hand-to-hand combat. Wrap it around your head to wharf off the noxious fumes or avoid the gaze of the ravenous bug-bladder beast of Trowl. Such a mind-bogglingly stupid animal, it assumes that if you can't see it, it can't see you. You can wave your towel in emergencies as a distress signal, and of course, dry yourself off with it if it still seems to be clean enough. We hope you remember to celebrate International Towel Day this week. It was on March 25th, but if you forgot, don't panic. There is a March 25th scheduled to occur sometime during the spring of next year, and you can do it then. That's your weekly briefing for the week ending March 27th. Thanks for joining us, and we hope to have you back next Friday with our next episode. The weekly briefing is available via Spotify, iTunes, and Stitcher. But if you get there via our website at eetimes.com, what you've got to do is click on the nav bar button that says radio. If you pop into the website, you'll find a transcript, links to the stories we'll refer to, and other goodies. And if you like what you've heard, share the podcast with your coworkers and friends. This podcast is produced by Aspen Core Studio. It was engineered by Taylor Marvin and Greg McCray at Coop Studios. The segment producer was Katie Huss. I'm Brian Santo. See you next week.